So what do these two words mean to you? Discipleship and discipline. From time to time here at Cana, we try to... Oh, I didn't get the one that moves. That's all right, Dave. It's all right. I'll figure it out. <laughs> so from time to time... Sorry, I just, it's, it's like... It's, even if I have the right glasses, it still doesn't seem to work. From time to time here at Cana, we try to explore common words in Christianity. And we try to untangle them from all the baggage that tends to build up over words through the centuries. See, words are funny things. They, they can evolve and they change meaning over time, right? And over cultures and, and what have you. And all of a sudden, they mean things that maybe they were never meant to mean in the original when they were first started. And this is especially true within, thanks a lot, Dave, within theological conditions, right? So what happens is they can completely have a different meaning, one, or two, they have so many different meanings, no one really knows what they mean anymore. And everyone uses them assuming everyone knows what you're talking about, but maybe you don't even know what you're talking about because they're just words. And this is especially the case with these two very interesting words. Discipline and discipleship. These words have a lot of baggage, don't they? I'm sure some of you were, as soon as you saw the words up on the screen, started to get anxious. I'm like, oh no, discipleship and discipline. Maybe even when Aaron was reading through 2 Timothy chapter 2, you started to get anxious. That is like one of the ultimate discipleship discipline texts in Scripture, maybe. Maybe it's as beautiful as these words are. So what I want to try to do today is, is maybe lift away some of this baggage. Explore these words, because I think if you're like me, you've abandoned these words as part of your Christianity, maybe. But maybe what you've abandoned, you should abandon. But unfortunately, we tend to throw out the baby with the bathwater, and we lose something beautiful if we completely abandon discipleship and discipline. So I want to talk about that today. Let's start with discipleship. The word certainly means in a generic form a teacher-student relationship, right? In which the student is actively and willingly learning as much as they can from the teacher within a sort of master-apprentice dynamic. And certainly there is a lot of that. That is part of the meaning of discipleship in Christian context. But scripturally speaking, there's another loaded term we should unpack someday. Scripturally speaking, everyone with me? All right, good, good. Just want to make sure. Uh, it goes much deeper than simply learning Christian creeds and doctrines. And it even goes much further than simply trying to apply those teachings to our lives. I think discipleship means nothing short of the imitation of Christ. And let me pause for a minute and say, you have to stay with me this morning, all right? It does get beautiful. We're going to get somewhere. We're going somewhere. But along the way, it might get difficult. So just stay with me as we go through this. Okay, so let's consider how Christ understood the concept of being his disciple in three amazing statements from Luke's Gospel. If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. A little further, he says, 
And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. And then he adds this to the bit. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. So this is certainly not quaint language suggesting we study Christian theology and get an A on the exam, is it? Or we go to our Bible studies. Or we're the best Christian at church. This is complete sellout to the way of Jesus Christ. Hmm. But, remember, we should be very careful in how we understand these words in the negative as it's presented. All right? First of all, I don't think Jesus is telling us to hate people. That goes against the larger narrative, doesn't it? Which is we are to love people. Sadly, it seems a lot of Christians right now have taken that to core. And they do a lot more hate than they do love. But that's not what he's getting at. What Jesus is commenting on, and sort of what Dave was talking about before that amazing song for Lent. Thanks for playing that, Dave. That was pretty powerful. I think what Jesus is commenting on here is a hatred directed at our own insistence, insistence on being the captains of our own lives. He's making commentary on the way we tend to put our lives, our needs, our wants, ahead of God and ahead of everyone else. Right? And let's face it, when you're really honest with yourself, really I'm talking about honest, doesn't sometimes it just seem we all live these lives of desperate attempts to just protect ourselves? This ongoing cycle. Wake up, get through the day as happy as you can, go to bed, do it again. Like, what, what, what an empty thing. But that's what's in us. And I think, so what Jesus is commenting on here is, it's killing you. Whether you know it or not, it's not the way to live. And I'm offering you something so much more beautiful. Here's where it starts. It helps, I think, if we see this same exact thing, but when he say, states it in the positive, right? This helps unload it for us a little bit. A new command I give to you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must, by this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So discipleship then is here. The imitation of Christ is discipleship. And that is, Christ loved everyone with an unconditional, sacrificial, relentless love. So true discipleship then is doing the same not spending our time taking care of ourselves, but spending our time taking care of others. But don't go too far yet. Just put a pause on that, okay? Otherwise, you're going to go right back into what discipleship isn't. So let's keep going. Martin Luther used to challenge his community all the time by telling them to be little Christ. Be little Christ. And St. Paul understood this reality when he wrote to the Corinthians in his second letter, and we all, with unveiled faces, contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Okay? Paul understood that. But Paul starts to get to the heart of discipleship here in the language he uses. Pause. We'll get to that in a couple seconds. So, discipleship, as understood by Christ and many of the early and later church fathers, was nothing short of a following of Christ with the unqualified willingness to be completely transformed into Christ-likeness. 
oh, now we're starting to get to language that isn't something we actually do. Hmm. All right. So let's continue because here's the rub. Here's the rub. Christ-likeness. Christ's entire life was predicated on an epic surrender of self. This is the rub. Okay? Being a good Christian is simple. Being like Christ, not so much. Which is, I think, why being a good Christian now is often radically different than being like Christ. Just like the good Christian story is radically different than the biblical story. So, Paul put it this way. This is a great capture of what Jesus' life looked like. Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being laid in the, made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So that's an epic surrender of self. And it's even more startling how much we're not into it, Right? Because we were always created, and here is the begotten, which is the uncreated. That, I mean, that's quantum physics. We can talk about that forever. But, so this is God from God, uncreated, yet he didn't even want to be God. He was willing to let it all go for us. Yet we're never willing to let self go. Right? So it's, it's really startling. So, here's the thing then. So any imitation of Christ is going to have to start in a similar place. That's why Paul starts this great hymn of humility with, have this attitude in yourselves. Have this attitude in yourselves. So, imitating Christ without this attitude is impossible. It's, it's impossible. Which is where we get a lot of ideas of what Christians should be and what Christianity should look like. Because we don't want to go here. We don't want to have this attitude in us. And I, and I get it. It goes against who we are. But, to imitate Christ is to put others ahead of ourselves. It just is. Paul said it this way. Remember when we were back in our three-year study of 1 Corinthians? Seek not your own good, but that of your neighbor. A smack sort of right in the middle of this whole letter. Seek not your own good, but that of your neighbor. That's the attitude of Christ. So it's to put others' preservation ahead of our preservation. To love others, even if it means we lose our life in the process. But now here's the important thing that we need to constantly remind ourselves of, and I try to do this here at Kane a lot, is that when we lose our life, this isn't loss as we understand it. I think that keeps us from losing our lives because we're so convinced our life is exactly what it should be, and the whole time God is like, no, when you lose your life, there you will finally find it. So this is this glorious mystery. This is why when Jesus came, he said things very clearly and directly. When you're last, you're first. Don't put a Western American spin on what Jesus said. He didn't say, make yourself last and I'll bring you to the front. He said, no, when you're last, you are first. He redefines everything for him. He said, when you're least, you are great. I'm not going to make you great. You're going to discover greatness in being least. And the best part of it all, when you're dead, you're alive. And somehow death, even in Christianity, has become this awful thing. And yet it's, it's, it's what, it's, it is Christianity. In death, we are alive. 
That's our singular hope. If it's not true, we're wasting our time. Or maybe not, because it's something beautiful to hope in. The Christ story, it's so beautiful. So the Christ story, the Christian story, discipleship then, is not one of ascent. It's one of descent. It's not making ourselves great. It's making ourselves dead so that we can be alive. But again, I want to suggest caution here. This is not a call to become great impressionists. And here's where we redefine discipleship, or maybe not redefine it, understand it the way it was always meant to be understood. We cannot muster the strength, the determination, the skills to live like Christ. We can't. We can muster the strength and the skills and the determination to be good Christians and look good from the outside and be the best there is and hold others accountable. We could be all those things. But that's all surface. That's all outside. Have anything to do with our inside? This is not a simple New Year's resolution. This is radical transformation of our lives by God. That's why it was so important the way Paul explains discipleship. We are being transformed into his image. We don't make ourselves like Christ. We are made like Christ. So then, discipleship is an invitation to discover the radical, life-reordering power of God's love. There's discipleship. An invitation to discover the radical life-reordering power of God's love. It's a posture of surrender of our own power, our own rule, and allowing God's love to be the new power, the new ruler. It's allowing God's love to be the way of our life. There's discipleship. To put another way, maybe we could say discipleship is allowing Christ to do what he does, make all things new. Okay? Different, right? So discipleship is opening ourselves up to the mystery of the reality that we can be like Christ. We can. We can. Because it's God's work in us, not our own work. And this is where discipline comes in. All right, Henry Noun, in a book co-written with McNeil and Morrison, says this about the necessary relationship between these two ideas, discipleship and discipline. He says, and I love this. I have a lot of Noun here. It's really beautiful. Discipline and discipleship can never be separated. Without discipline, discipleship is little more than hero worship or fatism. And without discipleship, discipline easily becomes a form of emulation or self-assertion. And self-assertion is exactly the antithesis of true discipleship. So that's why Christ was always talking about laying down our lives so we can be possessed by us. That's why I played that opening video for those of you who were here. I will possess your heart. We have to be possessed by Christ. 
I wish possession had never become a bad word through Hollywood and in the dark ages of our church because it's such a beautiful idea. We have to be possessed by Christ. We are. We have to understand we are and let that take over. Stop fighting it. We fight it all the time. Do we see? And that's what we're getting to here today. That's what we're trying to look at. So let's now consider discipline and see if we can understand this connection. But I want to make a side note again. This idea is a little tougher than discipleship for a number of reasons. Discipline tends to be a very negative word. We discipline our kids. We talk about needing discipline in our spending habits, discipline in our eating habits, discipline, discipline, discipline. So it's sort of a negative word. It's also trickier to break this down because there is an element of of the more common understanding of discipline in this kind of discipline, but not really. So let me try to let me try to get there. The human understanding of discipline and, and the way it's seeped itself into Christianity really has at the core the idea of human efficiency, self-assertion, and control, right? But those are all human things. Efficiency, self-assertion, and control, these are all what we do as humans. But I think this is where the struggle is in imitating Christ. Because if we think of discipline in these ways, that it's something we do to get to an end, then we find it too difficult and ineffective. Because while maybe it changes us the way we look on the outside, we know deep inside we're still nothing like Jesus Christ, right? And I think this is why a lot of people abandon discipleship and discipline in Christianity. It's been misrepresented and mispresented. If I want to run a marathon, I have to be disciplined. Very disciplined to run a marathon. Right? I have to run. I have to run and run and run and run. Another way I've explained it. Okay, so we all love Dave singing and playing his guitar. If Dave never picks up a guitar for the next 15 years and never sings a song, and then we have him try to do what he just did, it's not going to happen, is it, Dave? 15 years without playing the guitar, without singing, he's not just going to stand up and sound like he just did. How? He has to be disciplined in that, and it makes him a better performer. And that's beautiful. And there's something amazingly beautiful about that. But that's something he will do. Christian discipline has often been presented that way. You discipline so you can be like Christ. No. It's a different discipline we're talking about. Okay? It's different. If discipleship is allowing the Holy Ghost to transform us, then discipline is something much less negative and has nothing to do with self-assertion. It is self-surrender and the reaching out consistently beyond all that would try to capture our imaginations, reaching out beyond all the noise calling us to other gods, and beyond all the illusions supporting the lie that we are God. That's where discipline comes in. So, let me, Henry Noun again, okay? This is, oh. Discipline is an effort to reveal rather than conquer. God always calls. 
To hear that call and to allow that call to guide our actions requires discipline in order to prevent ourselves from remaining or becoming spiritually deaf. There are so many voices calling for our attention and so many activities distracting us that a serious effort is necessary if we are to become and remain sensitive to the divine presence in our lives. That's beautiful. Right? This is why I feel so much for our, for our culture now. All these advances in technology, which are amazing advances, like for example, one beautiful advance in our technology, because of Craig's inability to see far distance, we have PowerPoint, and I get to share it with him, so he has it. That's beautiful. That's a beautiful example of our technology. But here's a downside of our technology. That's all we know how to hear. You ever go to the beach now? And you're sitting there like, wow, look at that beautiful waves and sunset. Kids, look at that. Get it. Or worse, honey, look at that. And we think we're going to hear from God? In the last hour or more right here, people are checking Facebook. And I don't mind. I'm not yelling at anyone. Do, it's your life. You do what you want. But, I mean, we are so, have so learned to hear one thing, we can't even hear each other. You go out to restaurants, you go somewhere and you try to, you try to watch those people that are on first dates because it's always so awkward and it's fun to listen to conversations. But you can't even do that anymore because here's first dates. How are we ever going to hear from God? We have to practice. We're deaf to each other. God's voice is divine. I don't even know what it sounds like. And I'm never going to know if I don't practice. This is the beautiful part of Christian discipline. It's an effort to reveal rather than conquer. To learn what God sounds like so we can hear him when he talks to us. You know, the, uh, another way I can try to help say what I'm saying, I love classical music. It's wasted on me. 99.5 is in my car. I wake up in the morning, I put it on. I love classical music. The problem is... I only hear one thing. I hear something, oh, that's beautiful. I talk to people like my daughter and others who understand classical music, and they start trying to explain to me everything that's going on. I'm like, yep, nope, I'm just going to listen to it. And I feel so bad for that, though, especially because I love Bach. And I guess Bach, like, explained the universe, explained God and his music. Okay, it moves me, but I don't get it. But I wish I would. I wish... Maybe someday, if I ever take a sabbatical, maybe that's what I'll do is study classical music so I can understand what's really happening. There's no wonder Christians function in the economy of hate now. We haven't taken the time to learn that that's not the economy of God. Because discipline and discipleship in Christianity has just been getting it right, knowing the doctrines, being keepers of the faith. There's this guy right now. I am just amazed. You go back less than 10 years. Uh, yeah, you go back less than 10 years. He was the darling of evangelical Christians. Rob Bell. Everyone loved him. Everybody knew him. 
couldn't say enough about him, how brilliant he was and intelligent he was, and his doctrines were impeccable. And he was doing stuff no other Christians were doing, and he was the darling of the world, and Christians were listening to him, and non-Christians, he was a rock star. That's according to evangelical Christians 10 years ago. Today, oh my God, Rob Bell. He's the Antichrist. He's a demon. His theology's horrible. Oh my gosh. What? He wrote a book with a bunch of questions that, that didn't say anything. This <laughs> is the book with questions. He just said, let's ask questions. Oh no, no, he's evil. Keep him away from your kids. He's horrible. Because we don't hear God. We hear ourselves. And we think we're keepers of the faith. Huh? No. Well, thank God for Oprah. She gave him a huge thing. He didn't crawl into a tunnel and say, oh, I'm sorry. He just keeps doing his thing. Why do we hate? Because we don't hear God. We don't listen. This is where discipline comes in. This is where discipline comes in. Kevin Bean writes it this way. True discipline is the creation of certain types of intentionality that keep time and space open for God's healing, sustaining, empowering presence and purpose in our lives. That's what discipline is. Discipline in the Christian life is purposeful and is the pur- is purposeful opening up to the approach of God. So I love the way Noun puts it. It is like raking away the leaves that cover the pathways in the garden of our soul. Discipline enables a revelation of God's divine spirit in us. There it is. Christian discipline and discipleship is not about doing anything to become like Christ. It's realizing Christ is in us and getting away the stuff that doesn't allow Christ to live. Fully and powerfully and transforming. This is such a beautiful understanding of what discipline really is within the Christian faith and why it is so essential to discipleship. And here we go. This is traditionally and historically what the season of Lent is always about. Okay? So I'm going to talk. I know I've gone off my notes a bit, but I want to get back on them. I want to finish up here in a hurry, but I want to get through this. So if you have to go back to your Facebooks, go ahead, but I've got to get through this. All right? I think the season of Lent is and should be important to every Christian. If for no other reason, as a reminder of exactly what we just talked about. Because here's what the Christian journey is. Disciplined discipleship. There's a new beautiful way of understanding those words. Disciplined discipleship. Okay? Lent reminds us of this and allows us to enter more deeply into this practice through purposeful moments of opening ourselves to the transforming presence of God. For those of you that might never participate in Lent or don't really understand the history and you think it's a Catholic thing, it's not. Many denominations throughout the world and branches on on the Christian faith observe it. And here's what it is. It traditionally runs the 40 days from Ash Wednesday, that's Ash Wednesday, through Easter. Okay, Minus Sundays, they don't count the Sundays, that's why it's 40 days. And while it's not necessarily biblical in the narrow view of that term, it certainly seems to be loosely based on Christ's 40 days in the wilderness where he fought temptation. And remember what that temptation was about not going to the cross. 
Mm. There's our temptation. We don't want to go to the cross. This is why Lent is a beautiful time for us to practice going to the cross, fighting the enemy of souls who says it's all about you. Just preserve yourself. No, it's not. No, it's not. All right? Interestingly enough, in my studies of Lent, this tradition seems to be pre-Canaan, pre-Canaan, sorry, pre-Canaan. Some of the earliest church fathers, long before those of the Bible, were teaching that Christians should follow some sort of fasting leading up to the celebration of Easter. I want to encourage our community and you to participate in Lent. I believe we should be purposeful in acts of discipline to further our discipleship, remembering what we just talked about, however. Okay? Being purposeful during the season may help us in that endeavor all year through. Like I just talked about with music. If we don't practice something, it's not going to happen. You ever wonder about those heroes that you read about? Like, you know, every now and then you read about a hero that does something where, so recently I think there was a shooter on a train somewhere and someone stopped him. So while one guy's running at the shooter, everyone else is running away from the shooter. Well, that guy probably didn't just that day decide others are more important than himself. It must be a posture he has. Other people are more important than me. And so he was willing to put his life on the line. If we're going to be like Christ, right, just practicing all the year through. So the most traditional way of observing Lent is giving something up. That is true. But let me talk about that. It's fasting. But again, think about what we've talked about today. Fasting is the removing of anything that keeps us from receiving the transformative presence of God. Okay? So fasting at its core has to do with that idea. Fasting is a reminder, when it's done properly, that God's approach is the most important thing in our lives. God's voice is most important in our lives. And all the other things that give us pleasure, if we are not careful, can usurp that approach, even good things. Okay? So how do we fast? How do we fast? Let's talk about that. Firstly, do not limit that idea to food. Okay? And I think this is why some Christians who've never participated in Lent sort of fluff it off. Oh, that's when the Catholics don't eat meat on Fridays. Oh, that... No. Lent is so much more important and so much bigger. Okay? Fasting. So, for some people, food can be a distraction in their life. And so a Lenten fast may include food or some specific food. The biggest part of my Lenten fast is, is I give up alcohol for Lent. I've done it every year for I can't remember how long. And it's a beautiful six weeks. And the reason I do that is because for me, I love to have a glass of wine with my meals. After I cook a meal, I love to enjoy it with a glass of wine. I love to have beer. It is the one thing I know is missing from my meals all the time. And it's as missing week five as it is week one. And what that missing does is I go, oh, water. And I remember why I'm not having it. Because I want to hear God instead. I want to open up to God. I remember that I'm doing this so I can practice not having something I love. And maybe altering my place to see something different. And to hear God's voice. Okay? But for most of us, the things that distract us from the presence of God in our lives go way beyond food. Way beyond food. Bean helps us understand this better. He says, God wants us to be truly available to Christ in his ongoing mission. 
It is only as a means to hear God's call more clearly. See, that's what I was talking about. That we give up this or let go of that and possibly fast from our more self-centered pursuits, bad habits, old grudges and discontents, our tendency to judge others and some of our more endless distractions. That's beautiful. I think another thing I'm really going to try to give up this Lent is talking negatively about people that I think have horrible theological or political worldviews. And that's not going to be easy. But I'm going to practice that. Because God loves them as much as he loves me. I think for some of you, I'm not pointing fingers, but I think you should give up Facebook or social media at least for 90 minutes on a Sunday morning. And I'm not, you know me, I don't care what happens at Cana. That's not the point. The point is, if it's really that important that for 90 minutes you can't pause to try to hear God, not hear me, I don't care if you listen to me or not, I'm just a guy. But from the beginning of our service, when that opening video starts, that sets the theme for the day through to the final benediction, and even the song I throw on after, if social media is taking you away from that practice of hearing God, think about that, right? I'm not judging, honestly, please, you, I'm just, I'm trying to help give a practical understanding of what I'm talking about today. That's where we don't, that's where, beautiful discipline discipleship come in. All right, wait, one, one more quote, the Whitestone Journal. Doing without can strip away some of the illusions and give us a glimpse of truth. During Lent, we have the opportunity to hear voices, there's that hearing again, that are usually lost in the din of pleasure and meaningless talk. We can enter into a private desert, even in the midst of the world, and face our own demons. And here's the part that gets me we can tear down false idols only to be heartbroken at finding others behind them. But if we are brave, we can run through this desert trying to find the real God amid the gods. Ah, 40 days in our own desert. Think of it this way. Self-preservation is the arch enemy of the imitation of Christ. And it's not something that goes away easily. So we practice it. Only grace can destroy our propensity for self-preservation. Grace saves us and grace transforms us. So ultimately, what Lent does is Lent is a practice of the surrender of self so we can be better positioned to receive transforming grace that we need to imitate Christ. Okay? Discipleship and discipline. So I want to covenant together to use this Lenten season to open ever more purposefully to the presence of God in our lives. To, as Lewis reminded us, give up our own lives so that we may receive nothing less than the living Christ in us. And there it is. There's the beauty of this whole day and what discipleship and discipline is all about. We do not enter a time of fasting for fasting's sake. We do not surrender for surrender's sake. We do all of this to be made new to become like Christ. Lent does not end on Crucifixion Friday. It ends on Resurrection Sunday. Or, as K. Pond so wonderfully put it, the faster is a person preparing for